I can't change people's minds. So I'm just going to be who I am, you know, work with the integrity that I know that I have and be the type of artist that I want to be. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so happy you decided to tune in because this is one of the episodes that you definitely don't want to miss. Our today's guest is Sabria Tagbilek, who grew up in the environment of Middle Eastern music and dance. She's the daughter of renowned Turkish musician Ahmed Tagbilek and Lisa Jelan, once an international ballet dancer herself. While attending the University of California, Sabria began taking classes with renowned teacher Suhaila Salimpur and quickly became a member of her dance company. It was while studying with both Suhaila and Jamila Salimpur that Sabria was encouraged to begin teaching and developing her passion for instruction. But her love for performances also took over and in 2005 Sabria based herself in the Middle East where she has worked for seven years with Lebanese agent Taurus Siranusan throughout the Gulf and North Africa. She also spent one year in Cairo working at the prestigious nightclubs in the Semiramis International Hotel alongside with legendary Dina. In this conversation Sabria shares a lot about growing up in artistic family and uh, moreover with mother being former ballet dancer herself and knowing all ins and outs of this profession as well as she shares something about music style that her father is known for so-called arabesque music so you will discover a little bit today about turkish different styles of turkish music and we talk also about life dance life performances performing in the middle east later transitioning from a performance to a teaching career or i would say switching the gears while we always kind of combine both but sometimes one takes over another so how is this transition from mainly performing to start mainly being a teacher as well as realizing the huge gap between ballet dancing in the Middle East and modern festival world that we all ballet dancers are part of and how to adjust and transition into it, as well as adjusting to another surprise of lockdowns and switching gears on our activities according to the worldwide situation. So, many talks about different adjustments which are very important these days for us not to feel that we stuck in one place but we kind of adjust whatever we want whatever our goals are to the current situation but still keeping this goal this dream in our mind so i hope you will find some 
inspiration and useful information in this episode. And on this note, let's dive in. Hello, dear Sabria. I'm so happy to talk to you today and thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Looking forward to it. I definitely know it's going to be a very interesting and exciting conversation and it will start exciting right from the very beginning because usually we start diving very deep to the very beginning of belly dance journey of each of our guests and I know that for you dance and music were in your childhood or probably even before you were born you already were listening to the rhythms and melodies and songs so can you tell a little bit about your childhood environment and that period that you start thinking about ballet dance as a career like how did it transition yeah so i my mom was a dancer and uh she's she's american so she, she wasn't born into it but she um and my father is uh a musician so that's actually how they met and um and yeah so it it's belly dance is something that's was there from the beginning it's i um it's not something that i i i, I don't have a memory of, of the first time of seeing it or the first time hearing the music it was just always there um But then, but I guess you could say I didn't, I started thinking about doing it or pursuing it more. Well, there's sort of two phases. Like when I was um, 13, I started to take classes. And by then my, my mother had stopped dancing. And, um, and then also, then I got, but it was just a hobby. And I think I wasn't looking at it as something to do because I had seen my mother do it and my, I'd seen my father, both of them working as artists. And I, I just knew that that was, I didn't have any illusions about the glamour of what that was like. I could, I knew it was also hard work. So, um, but then when I finished college, I decided, okay, if I'm going to do this ever <laughs> full time, this would be the time because I'm I'm done with my school. I don't have any commitments to a place or a person or anything. So I'll just do it for, I thought I would do it for a short time or a year or so, but I just, <laughs> still mm-hmm. doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, when you were uh, young, uh, when you were a kid, did you have any, you know, social pressure of like uh, becoming a ballet dancer? Because you probably heard many jokes from relatives or even friends like, oh, it's a future ballet dancer growing up uh, or dancer in general or, or maybe not, I don't know. But since you were in such artistic family and your mother uh, was ballet dancer, um, did you feel any like extra push uh, not only from your parents but from uh environment who knew about artistic uh, uh side of your family <laughs> uh no it was actually the opposite um i both of my parents uh did not want me to 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 pursue dancing <laughs> uh because i think exactly because they they know how hard it was um And certainly on my father's side of the family, I, I have both, I have, you know, 
lots of people who are who are very supportive and um, of what I do and what I've become. But I've also I also have people who are not, um, you know, that are, adhere to the sort of cliches of a strict um, Muslim values, which I'm, my my family's not religiously conservative in any way uh, on the whole, but uh, some family members are very much against me dancing. So, um, so no, <laughs> I didn't, I felt like I didn't feel that there was a pressure for me to dance. I felt that I kind of had to fight to, to dance because it, people didn't want me to. And I think in terms of my mother, I, should, <laughs> I think she knew that it was, um, it was, it's hard. It's difficult. It's, you know, Financially, it's not the securest thing to do. Um, she also knew what sort of stigma dancers face and the the um, the attitudes people have towards dancers, and I think she didn't want that for me. Um, and the same with my father. I think he knew exactly what people would think of me and didn't want people to think of his daughter that way. So, um, no. <laughs> but I'm so glad that I did it. But once you started and then once they saw that you actually go in for it, uh, they probably supported with their experience in this field. Uh, uh, they give some support and maybe advice uh, from time to time uh, for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, kind of. I mean, my father and I, we certainly like connect uh, in talking about music and, um, our, and our love for, for Arabic music. Um, cause even though he's a, he's a Turkish musician, but a lot of what he's done is played in this genre, um, of Turkish music called arabesque. So it's, and he's from a town that's relatively close to, uh, to Syria and, you know, the Middle East, I mean, <laughs> Arab, um, Arab sounds, so to speak. And one musician, another Turkish musician, actually told me that he was kind of like instrumental in creating the sound that became known as arabesque. But so I will brag on his behalf. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so he's really into to Arabic music, and um, but he's also into like Indian music, and I mean, really anything. But so we definitely connect in that way. And if I have questions, like I can call him up and be like, what Macam is this? And he can tell me, or, um, yeah, it's, we have a nice, um, connection in that way. And then with my, my mom, she, she came <laughs> my clearest member of memory of her, uh, helping me. I mean, she's helped me in a lot of ways, but she, once, um, she was uh, she came to visit me when i was working in dubai and um she uh <laughs> like when she was a dancer in the 70s she had like she had to like make all her costumes you couldn't i mean you could travel to egypt but wasn't like you could do it once a year or anything like that and um and it wasn't so easy just to get your hands on a costume so she literally had to like make all these cost every costume that she ever wore <laughs> And then, you know, she came to visit me in Dubai and she was helping me do a quick change. And she was like, she was just like, I can't believe this. You just have like a closet full of beautiful costumes and you just, you know, like you have like over 20 of them. 
<laughs> and they're all beautiful and none of them are hand are like sewn by you and I was like yep <laughs> it was very um uh it was fun it was very fun and she uh she's also visited me in Tunisia and uh and uh once again coming back to like attitudes of what people think about dancing she was sitting in the audience there in Tunisia and and the waiters were kind of looking at her like, wait, you're going to watch your own daughter's show and you're okay with it? And my mom's like, yeah, <laughs> where's my drink? Where's my fruit? I want some. <laughs> like she was, she was pr um, proud and happy to be in the show. And, and that was really, really fun for, to sort of, to show off that, yes, um, I have parents who actually support me in this. Hmm, that's so awesome and so interesting like these stereotype approaches uh, from both, like in many different cultures, uh, but even like for waiters to be surprised that your mom will watch you show, of course she will watch. She wants to see her daughter on stage and uh, perform it. And I can only imagine the feelings that she had watching you dancing and uh, possibly remembering her like uh, dance experience and shows and uh, wow well, I, I can only imagine the feelings that went through her <laughs> in that moment yeah it's fun uh, talking about your experience and uh, your conversations with your dad you used one term that i actually realized we never discussed with anyone on the podcast and i'm pretty sure many of dancers may not really know what we are talking about. So can you a little bit dive a little bit um, more into the uh, term arabesque music? Sure. Just to clarify, because I'm pretty sure for many of our listeners, it would be a very new term. Uh, so arabesque is uh, in, in within Turkish music. I mean, the, the word arabesque is used in all sorts of things like architecture. And <laughs> um, but arabesque and in ballet even... Uh, arabesque in Turkey, uh, Arabic music refers to um, Turkish music, but that has this sort of more of an Arabic sound. So Turkey is a pretty large country and there's different regions. And if you go further um, west, maybe it will sound, some stuff will sound more similar to Greek music because it's closer to Greece. And then up in the north, up to the Black Sea, maybe you have a different type of folk music. But then Arabesque became also this produced sound, um, and I am certainly not an like expert on it, but um, it was. Uh, I think it became. I think it originated around um, the '60s. I'm, I'm sure it's influenced by things that came earlier, but it was this sort of sound that was known as being somewhat uh, more Oriental or Middle Eastern sounding, as opposed to other. Turkish music genres so there's a lot of diversity in Turkish music especially now you have all sorts of pop music that uh you know you have like rock music and you have house music that's Turkish all sorts of stuff but arabesque there's a great uh, movie actually on uh, here it's available on Netflix called uh, Muslim it's about a singer a man named Muslim and he's actually from the same city as my father um, so if anybody wants to know a little bit more about the genre or, or get an insight to the sound, that's a really easy way. Or just go to YouTube <laughs> and uh, search for uh, music, but with a 
K instead of a C. Um, arabesque with a K and then music with a K and mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff will pop up. Mm, interesting little tricks with transliteration, how you can dive in more deeper for the <laughs> subjects and styles. <laughs> thanks for thanks for the tip, um, for sure. Coming back to your uh, career and your dance experience. So throughout your dance career, you probably experienced the artist uh, hardship <laughs> that your parents were talking about. Did you ever had a moment in your dance career that you kind of regret that you didn't listen to your parents and didn't do it? Uh, or was it more like flowy and uh, more or less like without, you, you know, like artistic crises that we sometimes have? <laughs> Uh, no, my God, I've had all sorts of artistic crises. And since I've been doing this for a long time, I mean, I started performing when I was 16. <laughs> um, and so I think with, with each few years, you come into a new crisis, um, or a different there's, and you, you have a different relationship to your, your artistry and, and um oh god <laughs> this is a big question let's why do I start it, I mean it has not been a smooth it has not been smooth sailing um when I I don't know where to start <laughs> whatever came first to your mind <laughs> Um, well, when I first got to the Middle East, once again, uh, even though I was well aware from, you know, the culture that I was around growing up, and I knew that there was a lot of stigma against dancers. And also, um, my uh, my teacher, Suhaila Salampour, she's, she certainly didn't um, sugarcoat it. Um, she, she was also, she has a similar background to me, where she has uh, one parent who is Middle Eastern and was also kind of was disowned by half of her family for a long time. And um, so I didn't have this sort of naivete that a lot of people might have coming into working in the Middle East. But then when it, still, when I got there, I was still really shocked that it was, it really was like that. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, oh, well, if people see me and meet me, they will know that I'm nice and I'm a good girl. <laughs> and, um, and that's just, it, it's just not the case. I mean, people have all these sort of um, perceptions about dancers. And so it was really hurtful in the beginning because I love dance so much. I put so much effort into dance. I respect dance so much. And then to be surrounded by people that didn't, it was just sort of, it made me really sad for a long time. Um, but then I learned to adjust to that and think of, well, what can I do about it? I can't change people's attitudes. I also can't assume that everybody has a negative attitude about dancers. Um, I can't change people's minds. So I'm just going to be who I am, you know, work with the integrity that I know that I have and, and be the type of artist that I want to be. And so that was definitely um, my first crisis and then also leaving the leaving performing full-time is a definitely an adjustment um 
I don't know that it's as much, it wasn't a crisis, but it was definitely an adjustment where, you know, if you're on stage working seven nights a week, you have, you have a very special relationship with dance. Um, and to not have that, uh, even though it's exhausting and you can't do it forever, it's still, um, it's a, it's a transition. You have to transition into a different way. And I, and I get tremendous, uh, artistic fulfillment and, um, love. Uh, I have tremendous love for teaching. I, I, I think it's really fun. And like I said, I think it's fulfilling in a lot of ways, but it's different. It's completely different than, than performing. And, um, and you know, you, when you perform every day, you're, you're always hopefully <laughs> trying to get better and better and better and understanding the music differently and more deeply. And it's just this constant quest. And then once that quest is kind of not there anymore, it's, it's a loss. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you can even hear in your voice how much you still miss <laughs> that stage. I miss it, but I, I, I do and I don't. Like I miss, I miss being around the music every day because there's just no comparison to that. Um, but I'm, I'm not like walking around and sad. <laughs> my, my, my <laughs> no, of course, yeah. <laughs> Nobody needs to feel sorry for me. It's a, it's a nice nostalgia, I would say. <laughs> And it is a, it's totally a nice nostalgia. And actually I was interviewed by a woman um, just yesterday actually for, for, uh, for the Swedish radio. And she was, she asked to see some clips and I, I showed her some clips and she said, do you miss it? And I, and she said, how does it feel when you see these clips? And I said, well, now when I look at it, I appreciate things that I was too busy to appreciate when I was doing it. So it's now I actually get to appreciate it in a different way that I couldn't when I was there, but it is definitely nostalgic. <laughs> mm. If you had now opportunity to resume, resume uh, your performance career, you performed in many different countries. Which mm -hmm. country would you choose to go if you could choose just one? Oh, that's really hard because would I have to go back to, uh, to performing now in the current environment? Or uh, to like any year. <laughs> let's say, let's say, going back to your memories of your experience. Okay, okay, that makes it easier. <laughs> uh, oh, that's really hard too, actually. <laughs> How long do I have to be there? <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's say a couple months. <laughs> a couple months. Okay. Um. Oh, it's so hard because every place has like some good things and some bad things um i really I enjoyed working in tunisia they had i had great bands in tunisia when i worked there um but and but i felt really at home in dubai because it just the the city was just really easy i had lots of friends um the bands there were also really good they were the the smaller bands a smaller bands than what i had in working in tunisia or egypt but they were really really well they were really 
great bands. So sometimes like the five people, the five person band in Dubai could sound cleaner and better than like a 20 person orchestra in Egypt. Mm. However, having a 20 person orchestra behind you is also unbeatable. <laughs> like that is just um, really exhilarating in its own way. So it's really hard. I don't know. I don't like, it's almost like you'd have to, like I have to choose one place for one song and another place for another <laughs> song. <laughs> and how in terms of uh, audience uh, and different perception in different countries? That also really depends on the, which nightclub in each place. Like, because in Dubai, there was lots of different nightclubs and different nightclubs had different like, clientele and different types of crowds that came. Um, and as, and the same in Egypt, like dancing at a wedding in Egypt is not the same as dancing at another wedding in Egypt or dancing at, um, you know, one hotel is different from another hotel. It's so, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I would say Dubai because it would have like the audience from all over the Middle East, which I thought was really nice. So, you know, if you're in, I'm thinking of one particular club and they, you know, there's always people there from that were local and then you had business people from all over. I mean, the only thing that was strange, if there was somebody not Arab in the club. Uh. <laughs> I remember one time this, um, this uh, uh, like, Western man came, and he was sitting alone, and I was I kept looking at him, thinking, like, what is he doing here? <laughs> How did he find this place? Because it's in, like, a big, normal five-star hotel, but even the posters and things didn't have... Um, the program wasn't written out in English anywhere. So I was mm. like, how did you find it? <laughs> mm, that's funny. And uh, did you often have uh, other dancers visiting your shows? Because those dancers would probably look specifically for places that are not like touristic, but to see like the local shows, uh, the ways they are. Uh, and Dubai is known for, for clubs and shows. For Yeah, I think um, that happened more in Egypt because there's more of like a dance tourism there. Um, in Dubai, not so much, because like I said, really the places that I worked at, um, you would have to know somebody to know about the club kind of, you know, it's not, it's not so easy to find if you're just coming as a tourist. And there weren't that many people, like dance tourists that I could tell. <laughs> mm, I see. Yeah. yeah. And for you deciding to um, stop your full time performance career, was it the decision just because of, um, let's say, exhaustion of the tight schedule, or was it something else that you kind of decided, okay, it's time to to go to to switch to something else? Um, I would say primarily it has been um, because the way I was working, I was traveling all the time. Um, apart from the time that I was working in Egypt, I was moving literally like every month or every two months. At the most, I would be in a place for three months. 
And so it wasn't conducive to like the idea of like settling down, having a family or anything like that. So I thought that, you know, if I'm ever going to do that, then I should put myself in a position where it's possible. Um, so that was, I think, my, my, my biggest concern. And also I wanted to transition to something else before, um, before people were sick of me, you know, there's like a, it's a, there's a, there's a timeline limit as a dancer working in a certain, at a, especially in a certain market, you know, they, unless you're like super, super famous, like movie star famous, like Dina, if you're over a certain age, you're not, you're going to start getting less and less work. And I didn't want to be in the situation where I was getting less work. Like I was on a trajectory trajectory where I was getting more and more work. Like I was started and then I was, you know, I worked hard and I was getting asked to come back to places and, and I wanted to, quit while I was ahead <laughs> mm. makes sense. but transition to I assume teaching after performance career you kind of forwarded your energy into teaching it probably was a very still sharp turn let's say <laughs> <laughs> like not sudden because it was your decision so you probably prepared for it uh, but it's it's quite a dramatic change in activities suddenly from I mean, suddenly, not suddenly, but stop doing seven nights per week and then going into, oh, now it's teaching. So how was it for you and how was your first teaching experience? Or maybe you combined teaching while you still were performing and doing still some classes. So uh, for you transitioning to the now, let's say, building a full-time teaching career was maybe more easier with some previous experience. Uh, well, a couple of things. First, I, I've always sort of gone back and forth a little bit. So I, I've kept up performing, um, especially like when I first started, I, I came back, I moved to Sweden and in Sweden, it's very much on a kind of semester system. So I would teach in the spring and then the fall and then over summer and winter, I would go back and work. So I would work for a couple months in the winter in a couple months in the summer and then um, even as recently as a couple years ago I moved down to Egypt um, because I was just doing um, mostly workshops and then I would I danced a little bit when I was there um, so I've always had like one foot still in performing um, but it's but like I said, when you're not performing every night, it's different. It's kind of like a different relationship to performing. But it was hard. One thing I was really surprised about, I mean, I had been teaching workshops before I transitioned, but it was sort of like I switched the ratio. Like, so instead of performing like 80% of the year and then being and teaching maybe 20, it flipped. So, um, but when I, really got into like back into the teaching scene I was really surprised because you know when I started in the Middle East it was 2005 and then when I sort of started um I came back to Sweden at the end of 2012 um 
And then it was there, like this huge belly dance industry of festivals and things had really like taken off in that time. And I was kind of aware of it, but like it was a whole different market. And I thought there was just this huge gap between what was happening in the Middle East and what was happening in this like market of festivals. <laughs> it was a, it was a kind of a surprise to me, even though I'd known about it, but kind of being in it and seeing more of it in person, I was surprised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was uh, the main surprise, like the gap, but what exactly you mean by gap? Um, I, it, it seemed like, so the, that, the festival scene being a whole industry meant that people would start teaching, uh, would start dancing with the goal to become a festival teacher, not to become, not to perform and not to go to the Middle East, because certainly it's not for everybody. Um, and even with performing, there's lots of ways to perform, right? But But I think also part of it was that when I was sort of coming up as a dancer, there were lots of dance venues to dance at. Maybe not lots, but there were places to dance. Mm-hmm. Like in, um, And I think a lot of those places, those performance opportunities disappeared, but people wanted to keep dancing. So I mean, I, I understand that completely. Um, but I think part of what, I always looked at looked in a teacher for was to know is to learn how to perform and I think um and and not just perform at a festival for other dancers it becomes a very like uh insular market when it's like you're learning to dance to perform for other dancers it becomes this weird sort of yeah it becomes like a whole new beast on its own as opposed to um, learning to dance for an audience of people who don't know how to belly dance and how do, how do you how do you entertain them how do you move them like emotionally how do you or how do you reach them how do you reach your audience when they're not dancers and the dance itself uh, became different Yes, totally. Also because, you know, it's like, it's tied to, you know, you have a three to five minute slot to perform. That's it. <laughs> I mean, I was used to dancing for like, in the Middle East, I, for an hour at least. <laughs> and then, um, and even before that, you know, when I was, I performed in restaurants and things like that. And I would perform for, you know, at least probably like 20 minutes, you know, it's just longer than, than three to five minutes. And I think when you, when you have to dance in three to five minutes, you're like, Oh my God, I have to put everything into these three to five minutes. And it becomes this really like intense and frantic mm-hmm. performance. Yeah. Especially if it's also marinated under the sauce of competition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a different layer. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your um, 
current activities and teaching activities, um, how things were for you just before quarantines and lockdowns? Uh, yeah, so I was, I had workshops scheduled for the year. <laughs> um, uh, I had some performances I was doing in Cairo just a little bit. And um, yeah, I, I was, I was, not, I had, I planned to just do what I was doing. Um, and then, yes. And then my life changed a lot. <laughs> uh, I came back to Sweden because I thought, you know, if I'm going to get stuck, I thought I would come back to Sweden for like three weeks. And now it's been, I don't know how many, it's almost like, 10 months <laughs> yeah because everything started like crazy february march like depends yeah. on the country so february march yeah. somewhere april like is latest but usually like it's around march that really start like heavily across the world <laughs> yeah i was even in um northern italy and the end of february or mid-february so like one month before things in Italy got really crazy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was there teaching. So yeah. What were your thoughts uh, uh, regarding dance activities when you realized that it will take longer than three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think, I think I, I, th I, f I felt I feel really sad for um, the loss of of community because I think so many of us dancers um, really get so much out of meeting each other, seeing each other, moving together, and just sharing something that we love together. So that was. I think that's a real loss. And I think um, a lot of people are suffering from that. And then, of course, um, I feel really bad for all the people, um, you know, in the industry in the Middle East, because um, I think it's especially with live music. Live music was already taking a really big hit um, throughout the Middle East, but definitely in Egypt, it was um losing a lot of steam um and i think now it's going to be even harder to recover i mean it was already it was already taking time to recover from the arab spring and then to be hit with this and i i kept thinking of you know how like the Arab Spring happened 2011, and then this happened. You know, for a musician, that's like a, if if, the, if it took 10 years to recover from the revolution, and then now if it takes another 10 years, that's a whole like career. You know, no, you know what I mean? It's not. It's a. It's one generation of musicians that's going to be lost in a way, because it's not just the the fact that they're their work is gone but even like their audience is gone like it's just 
it's a tragic tragedy tragedy and um yeah it just makes me sad for the for the music hmm. yeah especially with uh, this uh, takeover of uh Uh, different styles of music, new modern ones, and uh, the fact that uh, even logistically and financially it's easier to uh, ask dancer to perform to recorded music, to popular mm -hmm. songs. Uh, so, yeah, it's I, I heard so many discussions among many dancers who also like expressed this uh, concern, like, oh, are we gonna have the live music on the same... Uh, level and blossom like we had it before just just from the point of view like would it be physically possible uh, like economically possible to sustain bands and uh, provide them yeah. work so they can they can keep the activities going on exactly yeah and how about your uh, own activities did you try to switch your teaching to online space <laughs> Yes, and I, I have. I teach some on Zoom. I taught some on um, and I, I have uh, another workshop coming up at the end of this month, um, also on Zoom. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely different. I'm glad that there's something possible. You know, it's, um, it definitely doesn't compare to being live. But one thing that's fun is that I, you know, you get students that I get students that I might just see once or twice a year for a workshop and then they can join me weekly instead. So that that's the positive that comes out of it. But really um, seeing a body in front of you is just totally different than seeing it in, on a screen tiny <laughs> with a, you know, music delay. Um, and then um, also I've taken just a little bit time, um, a little bit of a break um, over Christmas and New Year, partly because Christmas and New Year, and also um, because uh, I'm pregnant, <laughs> which is another big change in my life. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I had some weeks there when I was really, really tired. And also, I, you know, I just wasn't sure what was happening and but now I'm past these three months where you're supposed to, where you're kind of nervous you're not sure if it's going to be what's going to happen but I'm still pregnant <laughs> and so yes so but now I'm I have a little bit more energy and I'm going to stay stay active on zoom <laughs> oh, but so there's, if there's been radio silence for me on social media that's why because I've just been in this um Uh, state of suspense <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well uh, who knows maybe the third generation of dancers and musicians <laughs> <laughs> we'll see soon <laughs> well no pressure <laughs> this is gonna come out I'm like you have to save middle eastern music <laughs> I'll, make it, I'll have them be a musician instead of a dancer <laughs> I don't know I don't know what gender it is yeah so we'll see <laughs> either way it could be whether it's a boy or a girl it could be a musician or a dancer whatever it wants or something entirely different if it wants to <laughs> yes uh well for um your 
current activities i know like for you probably last three months were different uh, with this new uh, changes to your life to your body to your uh, understanding probably and world view like around but uh, before that um or maybe even now too but uh if you're talking for bigger portion of lockdown uh did you try or did you uh, manage or if you even if you felt the need of uh, uh, somehow incorporating dance in your life not just in terms of teaching uh, but maybe in some other way because i know many dancers have very they were very lost when they realized it's more than three weeks <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, many of dancers kind of lost, uh, um, well, partially motivation since for many dancers, festivals and live events, uh, performances, that was the main motivation to dance and to perform and to train and to get better. Uh, and now it was gone for unknown time, but for a long time, obviously. So... Partially motivation lost, partially was uh, inspiration gone, or not even inspiration gone, but like there was no, uh, you know, enthusiasm in it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, for you, how you felt, or maybe you have experience of some of your students that you kind of liked, uh, shared, or helped to overcome or work. And I know for some people, they managed to incorporate dance and use it as a tool to go through all this stress and, let's say, mini dance depression or whatever like uh, however we can call this time but uh, how for you was was it dance just as a part of your teaching activity or was it uh, also another part of your daily life or not daily but you know non-professional life let's say personal life <laughs> during this time yeah I mean I've been like I said this has always been something that's been a part of my life since I was literally a baby so dance is always there for me, whether, um, whether I'm thinking about it actively, or it's just sort of, sort of hovering around me. Um, and I, for me, what motive or inspires me dance wise is music. So just putting on music really helps me, um, because I can't help but think of dance. Um, but also, it kind of provides that uh, emotional release that dance gives me too is if I can get into the music that's also how I get into to dancing is just really I get the same kind of kick out of listening to music as I do sometimes dancing to music um, so and then also I think for dancers that feel that way that feel lost um, I, I can totally relate, especially if you're in a certain phase of your dance career or learning process where you're really like, there's just sort of a drive, like and a hunger, right? Um, and then you sort of have to, once again, renegotiate what, what does dance mean to me? What do I get out of dance? And I, I think there's so much to be gotten from dance that I think you just kind of have to tap into another aspect of it. Um, and I think, so I think sometimes maybe you have to go into a, like a learning phase or um, a, a learning phase without the goal of performing, like learning something 
that isn't going to prepare you for the this weekend's show. Maybe it will prefer, prepare you for next year's show, but something that has a little bit uh, longer term of a goal. I've had lots of students. Um, I've uh, been teaching in the Salonport Institute, which is online courses, but they're long um, six to 12 week courses. And so I know some of those students enrolled just so they would have something to do. <laughs> um, and I think, and the courses are really super intense. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. <laughs> like they're super, super intense and there's just a lot to do. And I think for them, it really helped them kind of get out of their thinking about what's going on and just, just working on their bodies and being challenged mentally and physically. And so I think finding that type of thing is kind of, I, I don't know, I would say like a, as productive a thing you could do with dance as possible, but I know people really mourn that, um, that drive to, to perform or to meet people and, and show what you've, what you've learned, but it's coming, it's there. It's there. It's, it's totally still going to be there. I mean, um, it's just going to be, but just think of it as a, of a longer term goal. And I think it's hard for people because we're like, especially this generation of people and dancers. I think we're, we're used to like, uh, what's it called? Instant gratification. Or mm -hmm. I was just about also to add a yeah. comment. Uh, like it, it shows uh, how much we are addicted to like this external uh, uh, yeah appro approval or gratification or appreciation, but like external feedback to motivate yeah. us to to do something. <laughs> yeah, and it's worse now with social media. You know, you want you post pictures, you post video, blah blah blah, and before I feel like when I was young I had to walk through the snow <laughs> so I feel like one of those old ladies but like there was like there were so few things at our fingertips like you had VHS tapes <laughs> and you had cassettes and I was it sounds like I'm ancient I'm not that old but um there just wasn't that much stuff available so you know you just really like you had one VHS tape that you could watch like over and over again. And I remember like you would borrow tapes from friends and, and be like, don't rewind it. I don't want the, like the tape to get worn out. Just like, you know, like hand rewind it. Um, and now like all those videos that we used to like covet are available on YouTube. You could just like pull them up in two seconds, mm -hmm. um, which is fantastic. But um I think uh, the newer generation is not used to that sort of delayed <laughs> satisfaction. I, I challenge people to watch like whole performances. <laughs> that would be something that people could do during quarantine. Don't fast forward through a dance video. Get a good old sh like show, like Fifi Abdu show that's like two hours long and watch all of it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good uh, investment of time <laughs> uh, during lockdown and quarantine. 
Well, before I ask you our traditional summary question, I would like to ask you first, uh, where can dancers follow you, find more information about your activities? Maybe you have your favorite social media that you are uh, posting uh, all updates. (laughs) Well, like I just said, I've been so bad about it because these last for a couple of months I've been kind of quiet because I've just been waiting to see um what's happening with my body basically <laughs> and this pregnancy but um you can find me on Instagram Sabria Tekbalek um and also on Facebook Sabria Tekbalek and also my website sabriatekbalek.com um, definitely cybertechbook.com has probably, it should have the most, um, updated information. And then once I have put something there, I try to share it on social media, obviously, but, um, but yeah, I think maybe Instagram is the easiest way to find me. Um, yeah, so. Hmm. I will make sure to include all links in the show notes so all our listeners, you know, you can easily find them there and connect with our guest. Um, and I also would like to thank you for time and uh, experience and stories and inspiration that you shared with us uh, today. It was very fun uh, talk and like uh, an hour just uh, flew by. <laughs> it did, it did. Yeah, thank so you so much for having me. It's always fun. <laughs> and uh, I would love also to sum up on a fun note. Uh, we have our traditional question that I ask every single uh, guest uh, for like almost three years so far of this podcast. And the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again? So you keep doing it for so many years. Oh, easy. Easy question. Music. The music. Totally. No question asked. Just hands down music. That's awesome. That that kind of was uh, from our conversation. I could predict it, but it's <laughs> nice always to, to hear directly. I thought you were going to ask me what my favorite song was. I can, I can never answer that question for something hard. <laughs> but, but definitely. Music and live music. Oh my God. Live music. Even if... Uh, it's another tip. If you have a favorite song or by a singer or somebody, if you can find a live recording of songs, oh my God, always so much better. Hmm. So much better. And that's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.